those who are second grade and younger among us to, to head down to Children's Church. Second grade and younger are welcome to head on down along with your teachers. Father in heaven, I I simply pray that you would come now by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and illumine and guide and open this text, these texts for us. My aim this morning is to preach the gospel by expounding the Bible to the people that you have given me to love. I pray I would be faithful in that task. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we come to week three in this brief four-week January preaching series entitled, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace a study of four key cultural issues in light of Holy Scripture. Two weeks ago, we addressed the growing trend in our nation toward gender dysphoria. Last week, we took up the heart-wrenching issue of elective abortion. And today we find ourselves on no less controversial ground as we consider the highly charged matter of so-called same-sex marriage. Our goal with this series wouldn't simply be that the Bible would hold our attention, but that it would stir our affections We aren't merely interested in transferring biblical data into our heads as much as we are transforming the landscape of each one of our hearts. Wouldn't it be remarkable if at the next family get-together or neighborhood party or water cooler discussion at your place of work that you wouldn't simply speak the truth about these supercharged hot-button cultural issues, but that you would speak the truth in love. A conversation where, by God's grace, you don't merely do justice to the content of the Bible, but to its tone as well. Gender dysphoria, abortion, so-called same-sex marriage, isn't it the case that much of the time these issues just generate far more heat than light? having a discussion with a professing Christian last night in my kitchen where there was just more heat than light and we weren't making much traction and we both love Jesus. Why is that? Well, part of the answer lies in the fact that many of us don't stop to consider just what Holy Scripture says, but how Holy Scripture says it. That's the burden of this series. 
47 years ago, Christian author and professor at Wheaton College, Dr. Clyde Kilby, wrote an essay titled, The Aesthetic Poverty of Evangelicalism. The title itself is an indictment, it's an accusation against conservative Bible-believing folks. Aesthetics has to do with the nature and appreciation of beauty. Aesthetics has to do with loveliness. And the author's talking about the aesthetic poverty of evangelicalism. 47 years ago, in March of 1969, Dr. Clyde Kilby asked, How can it be with a God who created birds and sky and who, before the foundation of the world, wrought out a salvation more romantic than Cinderella with a Christ who encompasses the highest heaven and the deepest hell, with the very heads of, very hairs of all our heads numbered, with a God closer than hands and feet, that Christians often turn out to have an unenviable, unenviable corner on the unimaginative and the commonplace. That's a fair question. Well, in this series, we're attempting to address each of these controversial issues, not so much that we may win arguments, but that we may argue winsomely. There's a difference, friends. Don't just seek to win arguments. Argue winsomely. Consider last week, our dear friend and my neighbor, Guy Runkle, armed us with aesthetically pleasing pro-life arguments. Pointing to Psalm 139 which is itself an aesthetically pleasing pro-life argument. Guy said in one of his points, the development of a human being is the work of God's hands and the womb is his workbench. That's good. That's really good. I didn't have a chance to give you feedback last week. That was good. That'll preach, as they say. It's not only a verity, it is a vivid one. It's memorable. It's a helpful turn of phrase for a very serious purpose. This morning, we have before us what is possibly the single most culturally explosive issue of our day, so-called same-sex marriage. It's been the law of the state of Minnesota, as you know, since August 1st, 2013. And it's been the law of our land since the handing down of the Obridgefell v. Hodges decision on the morning of June 26, 2015. How did we get here? Well, let's start at the very beginning. As Julie Andrews once said, a very good place to start. Here's the big idea today. Marriage is a lifelong drama designed by God to reflect the eternal reality of Christ's union with his church. Marriage is a lifelong drama designed by God to reflect the eternal reality of Christ's union with his church. You could state the biblical definition of marriage on one hand simply by counting your fingers. Marriage is one man one woman, one flesh, for life. One man, one woman, one flesh, for life. 
Therefore, from God's perspective, so-called same-sex marriage isn't merely objectionable. It is simply impossible. I'll say that again. Marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh for life. Therefore, from God's perspective, so-called same-sex marriage isn't merely objectionable. It's impossible. The message of the gospel is both the centerpiece and the storyline of the Bible. So what we're going to do in the time that remains is to preach that gospel. We're going to preach the gospel by pulling one of the most powerful thematic threads through the pages of this book, from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to look at the thread of marriage. Our aim will be to preach the gospel by demonstrating the meaning of marriage as well as the marring of it. Marriage is a lifelong drama designed by God to reflect the eternal reality of Christ's union with his church. So we'll unfold the drama in four acts this morning. We'll begin with act one, first point today. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage derails creation. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage derails creation. If you're with us today and you're a Bible-believing Christ follower, I hope you don't stumble over my use of the phrase so-called to define same-sex marriage. I speak this way because to use the language of same-sex marriage without qualification is to speak of a reality that simply does not exist. We could just as soon speak of difficult ease or a wet drought or a snowless Minnesota winter. Same-sex marriage isn't merely objectionable, it's utterly impossible. So the verbal descriptor so-called, or quotation marks when it's written by me, is chiefly to maintain clarity on this all-important distinction. So point one today is that so-called same-sex marriage derails creation. In Genesis chapter 2, we heard it read for us, we read of the creation of man, uh, well, from the dust of the ground, we missed that verse, that was verse 7. And he breathes, God breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life, and the man becomes a living being. He becomes a soul. Dust plus breath equals soul in Genesis 2 7. And then God puts him in the garden, both to work the garden and to keep the garden, to defend the garden. That's what that word keep means. And yet we learn that it is definitely not good that man should be alone. So God determines to make a helper fit for him, perfectly corresponding to him, every bit his equal, but very, very different. Uh, After man names all the animals, learning that nothing in the created order is his equal, it's at this very moment that God causes him to sleep. A deep sleep falls upon Adam and he begins to get to work. Scripture says that while Adam slept, God took one of his ribs and fashioned, the verb is literally built, a woman for him. And then we come to Genesis 2.23. Now, we'll have to settle for reading it in English 
But I'd like to translate verse 23 back into the Hebrew for you, if I may, for a moment, not to pull rank on you. But Hebrew, Genesis 2.23, sounds like this. Woohoo! Well done, Lord. Yes. Whoa, man. That's Hebrew. Here's the English. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Trust those words are indented in your Bible. Right? Genesis 2.23, written with an indentation, you should have that. Editors and translators are making an effort to remind us what all of its original readers and listeners would have known, listening to the cadence of verse, this verse. Let it not be lost on us. The first recorded human words in the Bible are poetry. The first recorded divine words in the Bible are poetry as well. Now, we could literally spend the rest of the morning unfolding and applying this verse word by word, clause by clause. But as you see in your outline, we've got more Bible to cover. We'll just content ourselves with this for the time being. Uh, Biblical scholar Sidney Gradanus writes, The parallelism in this poetry shows how closely men and women are related. Same flesh, same bones, but opposite sex. Man and woman complement each other perfectly. We see that here. We see that here. Man and woman as husband and wife are the perfect complement to each other. And though it may be a well-worn quip that we evangelicals need to retire, you'll notice that the poetry only works if God created Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve, right? Adam and Eve. It says in verse 25... After the wedding happens, in verse 24, that the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, unashamed. Imagine, neither one was clothed, neither one in their innocence needing to be clothed. Man and woman facing one another without so much as a fig leaf on, unashamed perfectly complementing one another. Not so with the same-sex couple. Now, picture's worth a thousand words. We did this last spring when I preached on how to counsel a person struggling with same-sex attraction. I'd like to do it again this morning. Draw in your notes, side by side, the male symbol and the female symbol. If you forget what it looks like, the male symbol is that circle with an arrow at a 45-degree angle. Then the female symbol is a circle with like a plus sign at the bottom of it. Alongside one another, you'd never see a mirror image, would you? But arrange the same symbol alongside one another, and immediately what you are viewing is a reflection. There are two Identical icons. It's a perfect idolatry. 
Why does the Apostle Paul mention idolatry in connection with homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1? Because homosexuality is one idolatry. In fact, it's a picture-perfect idolatry. It's humanity turned in on itself. You see, literally see the idolatry? So-called same-sex marriage wrecks creation immediately right out of the gate. Of of course it wrecks procreation. But if you stir in the matter of idolatry, you begin to see the moral issues involved here as well. We're already headed in that direction, so let's take a look at point number two. So act one, the very notion of creation, of so-called same-sex marriage, derails creation. Secondly, act two, the very notion of so-called same-sex marriage defies the fall. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage defies the fall. I suppose you could also make the case that the notion of so-called same-sex marriage defines the fall as in the fact that the fact that we desire it to exist as a nation is objective evidence of the entrance of sin into the human race. But I'd like to approach Act 2 from the angle that it defies the fall. That is, that the very notion of so-called same-sex marriage, it rebels against, and it resists, and it disregards the biblical teaching concerning romantic same-sex relationships. Romantic same-sex relationships are expressly forbidden in the Bible. The very idea, then, that so-called same-sex marriage, that God would bless and solemnize the union of two men or two women as a holy covenant before him is simply delusional. The Bible repeatedly and unhesitatingly condemns same-sex sexual behavior using some of its most graphic and explicit language to do so. In Genesis 19, we read of the destruction of the ancient Near Eastern cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And though the immorality of the cities was likely very wide-ranging, and objectionable in general, it's the attempted homosexual rape of two angels that calls down God's judgment on these cities. As a result, we read in Genesis 19:24 and 19:28 that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire, and the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Leviticus 18, there is an extended list of unlawful sexual relations detailed in the Mosaic Law. And we read in verse 22, the Lord says to Israel, you shall not lie with the male as with the woman. It is an abomination. The Hebrew word to'eva, it it means a thing of horror to the Lord. We read in Leviticus 20.13, that under the theocracy of ancient Israel, I could not be any more pointed in pointing this out, the theocracy of ancient Israel that does not exist anymore, the theocracy of ancient Israel, those engaging in homosexual behavior would undergo capital punishment. Uh, Leviticus 20.13 is chilling. If a man lies with a male as with the woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death Their blood is upon them. 
Now, moving into the New Testament, with theocratic Israel no longer a reality, we do not see the same threat of capital punishment, but in some ways what we see is far greater, and that would be the threat of eternal punishment. We see homosexuality addressed three times plainly in the Bible, uh, Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, and then 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and following is representative, so I'll, I'll read those verses. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Paul asks, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a 21st century American might object, but the Bible doesn't say anything about committed same-sex relationships within the covenant bond of marriage. And in response, it must be said at face value, no, it doesn't. At the same time, to imagine that Scripture condones so-called same-sex marriage is an argument from silence best and a thoroughgoing twisting and torturing of logic at worst. We can be confident that scripture would never covenantally sanction what God regards as an utter abomination. Say that again. We can be confident that scripture would never sanction what God regards as an utter abomination. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage, it flies in the face of the fall. It defies the fall. Third, Act 3. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage derides redemption. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage derides redemption. Though you may believe that what the Bible says about the sinfulness of homosexuality would be the most offensive thing to our culture, it's possible that there's something even more offensive. And that would be what the Bible says about the redemption of homosexuals. What I mean is this. The language of redemption means to set someone free. And if one stands in need of redemption, that would imply that they are in bondage and in slavery. You see what I'm driving at? To offer someone forgiveness is to indeed indicate that they are doing wrong. And that's why so-called same-sex marriage scoffs at, it mocks and disdains the concept of emancipation and salvation, which with reference to homosexuality in the first place. To suggest that they stand in need of redemption is an offense itself. Furthermore, what is equally as tragic is when you come to realize that the idea of uniting two persons of the same gender in a marriage covenant is actually to write a check that the arrangement just can't cash. The Bible doesn't value marriage of one man and one woman ever as an end in itself. It never had and it never will. Rather, the Bible constantly presses every marriage in the history of our planet toward the ultimate reality which it represents. And that would be the relationship between Christ and his church. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul utters his indescribably beautiful instructions for husbands and wives, he roots all of the ethical commands in the creation of the first man and woman as husband and wife. Ephesians 5.31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, word perfect. And then he follows it with his own inspired commentary in the next verse. So listen with fresh ears to Ephesians 5.31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's the quote from Genesis. Then Paul comments, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In this magnificent metaphor of marriage, husbands take their cues from Christ. At the exact same time, wives take their cues from the church. Together, they represent a picture of the church's union with her Lord. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is arguably the most pervasive theological theme in the New Testament. And there are many powerful images for that union. Vine and branches, head and body, cornerstone and temple stones, and more. But there is no doubt that the master image of union with Christ is marriage. There's nothing like it. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. And only marriage that sees marriage as one man, one woman, one flesh for life maintains the integrity of that image. Anything else from polygamy to polyandry to homosexuality destroys the metaphor. Now what's more, it's this gospel accomplished not through the picture in marriage, but through the person, the man Jesus, who offers forgiveness full and free for all of us, not just those who participate in homosexual behavior or who endorse it. The scripture I read in 1 Corinthians 6 needs to be read to the end here. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, we read not only of the condemnation of this, but the utter redemption of this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I hope you heard that this morning. We just hit the most important part of the sermon. The same gospel that so-called same-sex marriage disdains is the same gospel that saves and offering forgiveness and washing and sanctification and justification to all who will embrace it by faith. Are you in bondage this morning to anything but Jesus? 
you can be free. You can know redemption like never before. Freedom and liberty like never before. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, though, the very notion of so-called same-sex marriage derides redemption. It's a smokescreen to say that this issue is not the gospel or that this is not a gospel issue. It's not the gospel. But to destroy the greatest picture of the gospel on the planet says something about the human heart that would seek to do so. Final point today, Act 4. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage degrades the consummation. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage degrades the consummation. Last point in the gospel message is sometimes, if you take a big sweep of the Bible, it's sometimes spoken of in terms of restoration. You have creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And that's a great way to do it. It's an excellent way to talk about the final step of the gospel. Another way of speaking of the restoration to come, though, is the idea of fulfillment or completion or culmination. Or in this case, let's just hang with the marriage language, consummation. A marriage is physically consummated when a husband and wife come together and are joined in a one flesh union on the wedding night. But the Bible says that one day, one day is coming when the real marriage, the real marriage, the marriage to which every husband and wife union is pointing, the real marriage will be consummated. Though the physical, sexual dimension of marriage and their union between man and woman is profound in this life, it's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. Each of our marriages are pointing. They are pointing to the coming perfection and everlasting union of Christ the husband and his bride, the church. Revelation 19 7 to 9 reads, Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And let's not forget, that's poetry at the end of your Bible. It's poetry. In Revelation 21, 2, that incomparable description of the new heaven and new earth begins with the image of a bride. John writes in Revelation 21, 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I've, I've stood on this platform enough, looked over at husbands-to-be, and I've seen the bride at the back of the sanctuary. And there's nothing like looking at a husband's eyes while he looks at his bride-to-be. 
nothing like that. That's what Jesus is looking forward to, seeing us clothed in good deeds, grounded in the grace of the gospel. Friends, there's a wedding ahead. If you're in Christ, you're not going to miss it because you're a part of the bride. If you're not a Christian, it's my privilege to issue the wedding invitation to you. By the way, do you ever think about evangelism that way? Passing out wedding invitations? We could do a lot better than we do, right? And it's not only my privilege to issue the wedding invitation to you this morning. It's not only me. It's the Holy Spirit of God himself and every member of the bride in this church. Revelation twenty-two seventeen says, clear as day, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come and who desires to take of the water of life without price. That's our offer. It's come. Come to Jesus. If you desire Christ, come to him. Follow him. Give your life to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Put your faith in Jesus this morning and you will become a part of the bride. You see how we need to understand the biblical definition of marriage? This is such a weighty issue. See how precious the biblical vision of marriage is? The consummation is ahead. So-called same-sex marriage doesn't even begin to approach the beauty of this consummation. I wish I didn't need to say it, but for the sake of the confusion of our culture, I will. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage, it degrades the consummation. Well, let's review. Marriage is a lifelong drama designed by God to reflect the eternal reality of Christ's union with his church. Marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh for life. Therefore, from God's perspective, so-called same-sex marriage isn't merely objectionable. It is simply impossible. The very notion of so-called same-sex marriage derails creation, defies the fall, derides redemption, and degrades the consummation. Do you believe these truths? Do you see them not only as projecting something biblically viable, but as protecting something infinitely valuable? For those of us who are married, let us never cease to learn and love and live the gospel and the covenant that we've made with our spouse before God. And for each and every one of us, whether married or unmarried, young or old, May the call of Hebrews 13.4 echo powerfully across our lives. Hebrews 13.4 begins with this command. Let marriage be held in honor among all. I encourage you to hop into a community group this week and work those study questions. The, the application of this sermon is just beginning. If you'll take up the, the responsibility from here. Take the next steps in your personal devotions or maybe in family time or with a community group. And apply this sermon to your life. Uh, Next week, we plan to bring the preaching series to a close as we take a look at Psalm 127 and a sermon entitled, Unless the Lord Builds the House, a biblical response to secular parenting.
Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would be people who continually see the beauty of the gospel and the, the wonder and the artwork of the doctrine of union with Christ in all of its incredible pictures, chief among them, the union of a groom and a bride in a covenant of eternal marriage, Christ and the church. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not only to speak the truth in the culture today, but to speak it in love. I pray, Lord, that we would be loaded with 1 Peter 3.15 as people give <clears throat> us the opportunity to bear witness for the hope that we have. pray that we would do so, that we would hold the line on marriage, but we would do so with gentleness and respect and joy. Lord, tune our hearts to sing your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.